Welcome back to the Complete History of Coffee, Episode 11, American Revolution. Grab your favorite caffeinated beverage and let's get started. Today I am trying a strawberry lemon orange blossom tea. I decided to choose tea today because of its significance in regards to the American Revolution. I considered releasing a new members episode on tea history to start off today, but this episode turned out to be rather jam-packed with information, so instead I will be using our tea tasting and this recap of the Boston Tea Party to start us out. So right off the bat, the tea smells very sweet. I'm definitely getting a lot of the lemon, and there is a little bit of the strawberry and orange as well, but the lemon is very predominant. Let me try tasting it. So the tea is a very strong tea. It has a little bit of a almost sour taste to it. Definitely not quite as sweet as the smell, but I'm getting a little bit of the orange and the lemon. Not so much on the strawberry for the taste, though. After years of oppression from British rule, which came in the form of the Stamp Act and the Boston Massacre, American colonists gathered in Boston's harbor and threw containers of tea off of a British ship. They did this in rebellion against the recent tea tax, which had been placed on them. Emboldened, they wrote a declaration of their independence to the King of England, and as a result, they went to war with those tea-drinking Brits and formed a new nation on coffee. One ruled by goats. Well, actually, one ruled by people, which is what democracy means in ancient Greek, demos, or people, and kratos, or rule by. This may be an oversimplification of events, and certainly leaves out important details, like America's love of tea and Britain's love of coffee. Further, what led to the tea tax in subsequent revolutionary war? So let's start by going back to the beginning of coffee history in America. In 1607, Captain John Smith introduced coffee to Jamestown, the first colony which ultimately led to what would become the United States of America. Smith, who served as a founder of Virginia, brought coffee with him to New England after having discovered coffee on a trip to Turkey. Nearly two decades later, in 1624, the Dutch established Manhattan Island, but they did not bring coffee with them for whatever reason. And one may wonder about the Mayflower and its settlement at Plymouth, but there was no record of any coffee on board, although there was a mortal and pestle which could have been used for a variety of purposes, including coffee grinding. Coffee first appears in documented records from New England in 1670, being sweetened with sugar or honey and cinnamon. Coffee houses took off in popularity in the 17th century, just like those in England. These coffee houses often served beer, wine, and coffee, being referred to as coffee taverns or coffee inns. Some believe the first coffee inn was open in Boston in 1676, Boston at this time being the cultural capital of New England. The first coffee house to have been established based on definitive records was Boston's London Coffee House in 1689. Another coffee tavern was established in Boston in 1654, the Green Dragon, 
It was originally a tavern, but later changed to a coffee tavern, becoming a place for important political figures like John Adams, James Otis, and Paul Revere. They met there to discuss freedom for the American colonies, leading it to become known as the headquarters of the revolution. Bear in mind, before the revolution, most Americans were tea drinkers, just like their British counterparts. It was after the Boston Tea Party in 1773 we see a societal shift towards coffee drinking. This societal shift was seen as a patriotic duty, and so coffee became king of the American breakfast table. The Freemasons began holding their meetings in coffee houses, and the Green Dragon became a crucial site for the revolution, with the Sons of Liberty meeting there to plan out the Boston Tea Party. Paul Revere beginning his famous ride after hearing of plans for British invasion, and following the revolution in 1788, a committee met there to push for a resolution, which urged delegates from the various states to adopt the U.S. Constitution. Patriots planned the revolution from the Green Dragon, while loyalists to the monarchy held up in the British coffeehouse in Boston. This political rivalry between revolutionary factions is similar to the Jacoba and the Royalists who met in their respective coffeehouses during the French Revolution, which came just nine years after the revolution in America. The British coffeehouse was where James Otis was lured and beaten by Royalists. It served as the location for the first theatrical production by Redcoats in Boston, The Orphan by Otway, and it hosted officers of the king as well as colonial governors and military leaders. Immediately after the British evacuated Boston, the British Coffee House's name was changed to the American. The Boston Tea Party might make some think this alone led to the increase in coffee's popularity in New England, but this oversimplifies things. For starters, the tea tax had nothing to do with raising the price of tea, but simply was a change in tax. See, England was involved in the Seven Years' War with France, and after the war concluded, England went back to a more hands-on approach to governance, which the colonists were not used to, and so upset them because they felt like this was stripping away some of their freedoms. Further, coffee was well established in New England before this point. But this tipping point in the revolution did cement an already established yet small coffee culture in America. Coffee imports, like tea, were controlled by the British and came primarily from Jamaica. So the Tea Party led many patriots to seek non-British imported goods, such as John Adams, who only wished to drink tea smuggled in or which avoided British duties. Adams, like Prussia's Frederick the Great and France's Napoleon, wished people to instead purchase homegrown goods. The British East Indian Company held a monopoly on tea, and after the Stamp Act and the tea tax, it became an American tradition to avoid tea and support coffee, resulting in coffee houses gaining an enormous boost in business. It also helped that coffee was grown closer than tea to America and was cheaper to buy. We can see this when John Adams' wife talks about women riding over coffee because there were fruit shortages during the war. See, Thomas Boylston tried to take advantage of this and raise the price of coffee. It resulted in a mob of angry women taking coffee from his warehouse by force. The United States, as a result of avoiding British coffee and embargoing British tea, began seeking coffee in closer regions like Latin America. 
Still, though, tea was drunk about as much as coffee by Americans through the next century, because coffee served mostly as a re-exported product through the U.S. from South America to Europe, accounting for 10% of all U.S. income through trade during the 19th century. It was also during the late 1800s that many European coffee lovers came over that the U.S. became a huge market for internal coffee consumption. Coffee became a staple of U.S. culture by the time of the American Civil War, yet at the founding of the nation during the American Revolution, the U.S. drank primarily alcohol. We see this in the First Continental Army, who received rations of spruce beer and cider. This was not the case for all Americans, however, as many women were drinking coffee. Before we go into American coffeehouse culture further, let's distinguish the four types of public houses. There were inns, which were like a bed and breakfast, or hotel with a restaurant. There were ordinaries, which acted as both a boarding house and a restaurant. And there were taverns, which were like a bar with bedrooms, which all would have deterred DWIs because they all sold alcohol. The last type of house was the coffee house, which was seen as a pretentious tavern, as they generally also sold alcohol. While it is possible the Dutch may have introduced coffee to New York, which was originally their colony of New Amsterdam between 1624 and 1664, we do know there's evidence of the introduction of tea. Coffee officially arrived in New England in 1670. Coffee houses in the English sense of the word did not appear much in New England as inns and taverns were more typical. Coffee, as a result, was in competition with wines, liquors, and tea during the 17th and early 18th centuries. In St. Louis, we find the coffee house of Conrad Leonard, which became famous for not only its coffee, but also its coffee cake from 1844 to 1905. Chicago had the Washington Coffee House and the Exchange Coffee House. New Orleans held much of the city's business transactions in coffee houses, creating a drink called the brulee, which consisted of coffee, orange juice and peel, sugar, and cognac, a type of brandy burned and mixed in. The largest cities in New England at this time were Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. So let us look more in depth at the coffeehouse culture in these cities. In Boston, Dorothy Jones gained the first coffee and chocolate license in 1760, but this may have referred to selling coffee grounds, or powdered coffee, as it was known then, rather than selling brewed coffee. Coffee was likely known before this, as British ships may have brought over samples of coffee and tells of their revolutionary coffeehouse culture. It seems the London Coffee House opened by at least 1689, as the historian Samuel Drake mentions the coffee house selling books, which would make the Goodridge the second coffee house to open in Boston, receiving its license to open in 1691. The Bunch of Grapes Tavern was also significant in the American Revolution. It entertained George Washington, hosted John Hancock's dinner to end a rivalry over Pope Day, and, most notably, was the point from which a delegation from Philadelphia read the Declaration of Independence from the balcony, sparking the revolution. Two earlier coffee houses in Boston were the Crown, open in 1711, and the Royal Exchange, which began running stagecoaches from Boston to New York in 1772. 
but the highest class coffee house in Boston was the North End, open in 1740. One writer talked about the coffee house mansion as having 45 windows and valued at around $341,000 today. The Exchange Coffee House, opened in 1808, was the most ambitious coffee house ever built at the time. Designed by Charles Boltinch, it was half a million dollars to build. In New York, we see a record in 1668 that citizens had succumbed to coffee. Chocolate was the preferred drink of the Dutch, but after the British took control in 1674, their cultural practice altered New York. This was primarily in the context of home life, as tea and coffee became the preferred beverage at the breakfast table. New York became a hub for coffee culture, however, and coffee houses began to take a social significance like those in Europe. Business, politics, and social life took place in these coffee houses, yet no significant writings as the colonies lacked any notable professional writers. However, they did hold court cases, general assemblies, and council meetings in coffee houses, which distinguishes themselves from their European counterparts. There are claims of the first coffee house in America being in New York, yet we have no existing documented evidence which predates Boston's London coffee house. However, King's Arms is the first documented coffee house established in New York, opening its doors in 1696. Made with yellow brick brought over from Holland, the King's Arms was two stories tall, hosting an observatory on the roof where patrons could sit and overlook the city. Within an open space where people could socialize and talk, on the first floor, this coffee house offered private spaces in the form of booths with green curtains to allow people to enjoy their coffee. The second floor was a meeting space for political and business purposes. The King's Arms was often referred to simply as the coffee house, and it is finally in 1709 we see the use of the term the new coffee house finally appear. While it is unclear if this was referring to a new coffee house in New York or simply that the King's Arms moved to a new location, we don't see any mention again of a coffee house in New York until 1729. It is during this period the King's Arms became more of a tavern, but we do see the rise of the Exchange Coffee House. The Exchange Coffee House may have been the one mentioned in 1729. But certainly, by 1732, it was the primary coffee house of the city, claiming the title of the coffee house. During the 1730s, the exchange became a place for council assemblies and the main location for auctions, as well as coffee consumption. By 1750, the exchange began to decline, becoming a gentleman's coffee house and tavern, and later disappearing from the historical records by 1753. This was due in part to a new coffee house in New York, known as the Merchant's Coffee House. While it is unclear when it opened, it seems Daniel Bloom bought the Jamaica Pilot Boat Tavern in 1737 and turned it into a coffee house. It struggled for a time to compete with the Exchange Coffee House, but was able to grow in popularity based on its location near the meal market. Like the Exchange, it hosted booths on the first floor and a meeting room on the second floor, becoming the central meeting place for the city as the exchange declined in popularity. Several owners followed after Daniel Bloom, but around 1772, a woman, Mary Ferrari, who had been leasing the coffee house, 
opened a new shop across the street and took with her the customers of the coffeehouse. Mary Ferrari ran the coffeehouse until May of 1776, right in the middle of the lead-up to the Revolutionary War, when Cornelius Bradford took it over. Bradford would leave the coffeehouse and New York following British occupation of the city. During British occupation of New York, the merchant coffeehouse continued as a place of great activity. Trading, especially of prized ships, took place here during the war. Following the war, the New York Chamber of Commerce resumed session on the second floor in 1779, after having been suspended since the start of the revolution. The coffeehouse hosted the Knights of Corsica, Society of Arts, and Whig Society, among a much longer list of organizations. In 1781, John Statchen took over and promised to make it the main tavern and coffeehouse of the city. Statchen attempted to create what we might think of today as a cafe, with breakfast being served before 11 a.m., and soups and relishes from 11 to 1.30, and coffee and tea being served in the afternoon, like back in England. Following the war, Bradford returned to New York and took back over ownership of the coffeehouse. He changed the name of the coffeehouse to the New York, but people continued to refer to it as the Merchants. He also began recording ships coming and going from the city and started an early version of a city directory, which collected people's names and addresses. Before being destroyed in the fire of 1808, the coffeehouse hosted the reading of orders to citizens from riding against the Stamp Act the general meeting of citizens to discuss a coordinated effort with Massachusetts to resist Britain, meeting of citizens following the battles of Concord and Lexington, and forming the Committee of 100, which administered public business. All of this points to the Merchant's Coffee House as the virtual seat of government during this period of time. It was a resort for the American army when they held the city at the start of the war. And after the war, Washington was welcomed with a reception as president-elect in 1789 by the governor of New York and the mayor, one week before taking office. The first financial institution of the city, the Bank of New York, was formed by people in the coffee house. And in 1790, the first public sale of stock by brokers took place there as well. The Merchants was also where the Tontine Coffee House would originate from. The Tontine Coffee House was the primary coffee house after the Merchants burned down in 1804. Named after Frenchman Lorenzo Tonti, who introduced the idea in 1653, it was formed in 1791 by 157 shareholders. The idea was after any of the shareholders passed away, the other shareholders would get their share rather than anyone's heirs. The shareholders expanded the coffee house, buying the two properties next to it. The stock market made its headquarters in the Tontine in 1817, and it, ten years later, it would become the New York Stock and Board Exchange Board. Through all of this, it remained a coffee house, as the Tontine Association stipulated in their articles that it would have to be used as a coffee house. The coffee house remained as such until 1834, by which point the Tontine had been struggling for years to keep up with the Merchants Exchange. In 1850, there was a new Tontine coffee house built, but it lacked any real aesthetic of a true coffee house. It was five stories high, and it was said to have been the first office building in New York. The end of the Tontine coffee house marked an end to New York's coffee house culture. Exchanges and office buildings took their place, while clubs took on the social function and restaurants became the place for food and drinks.
William Penn is believed to have introduced coffee to Philadelphia in 1700 alongside tea. However, tea, like in Boston, took off with much greater popularity than coffee at first. This change led to the coffee houses of Philadelphia. These early coffee houses were elegant, yet very distinctively colonial in their architecture. The Yee Coffee House, the two London coffee houses, and the City Tavern, also known as the Merchant's Coffee House, dominated the city's social and official life, acting as a meeting place for ships, captains, merchants, and the large Quaker community there. The Yee was the first coffee house in the city, built by Samuel Carpenter, likely in the year 1700. At the start of the Revolutionary War, members of the community gathered at the Yee to discuss issues they had with British occupation. The next coffee house was the first London coffee house, built in 1702. The London became the meeting place for William Penn, founder of Philadelphia, and his followers, while the Yi was a meeting place for his opposition. Penn talked about the cost of coffee from New York in 1683, stating the price of a cup of coffee was more expensive than the average meal. Penn might not be surprised today by the price of a specialty latte or frappuccino from a cafe in comparison to a cheap meal at a fast food place with coffee often costing the same price or more than a whole meal, as my mom used to always point out to me every time she got me a frappuccino from Starbucks growing up as a kid. The Yee Coffee House became an important spot for commercial and public exchange, yet it is unclear how the coffee house came to an end. We do know in 1734 it was being operated by Henry Flower and is speculated to have been used as a post office on top of beverage cells. Benjamin Franklin mentions the coffee house in 1740 as having, quote, very good coffee sold by the printer, end quote. Where the Yi was for exchange, the London was more of a clubhouse for the upper class. The second coffee house to bear the name London was opened by William Bradford in 1754. The building had three main stories with an attic for a fourth floor, and was surrounded by a wooden awning which extended over the sidewalk surrounding the building. It became the most celebrated coffee house in Philadelphia, being referred to as, quote, the pulsating heart of excitement, enterprise, and patriotism, end quote. The governor and other leading members of Pennsylvania went there, auctions were held there, and even slaves were put on exhibit in front. Bradford left after joining the American Army as a major and later a colonel. Shortly after the war, the London began to decline, being sold in 1780. Part of this decline may have been a result of the new Merchant's Coffee House, opened in 1773, originally a tavern under the name City. It may have been renamed after the famous Merchant's Coffee House in New York, but in any case, it went on to be better noted than either of the London coffee houses in Philadelphia. This coffee house was modeled after those of England, standing three stories high with several large meeting rooms. Two of them were connected by a doorway, which could be opened to create one large space 500 feet long. During the Revolution, the city tavern began to become better known, and following the war was a huge success. It was known by some as the New Tavern or even Smith's Tavern, but certainly by the start of the 19th century, it had become the Merchant's Coffee House. The coffee house was nearly destroyed by supporters of the monarchy during the Revolution and would have never made such an impact on Philadelphia's history. This was because Martha Washington, 
wife of the future first president, was invited to have a banquet at the tavern to honor her, while en route to her husband in Massachusetts, who was taking command of the American army. The tavern was not torn down, however, as Miss Washington decided to avoid issue altogether by not going to the tavern while visiting the city. Philadelphia's Merchant's Coffee House went on to host the City Dancing Assembly, the first representative from France to the United States, and giants like Washington, Jefferson, and Hamilton when they visited. After America successfully gained its independence, coffee from French Saint-Domingue began being imported into the United States. This trade of coffee from the Caribbean led to a re-exporting product during the Napoleonic Wars, because England, as we discussed previously, created a blockade around France. American ships could often get to Europe to deliver goods, such as coffee, but several ships were captured by the British Navy, which would later fuel a second war with England, the War of 1812. Coffee grew in the United States after 1830 because Americans, like the British, stockpiled for the Franco-Spanish War, which never took place, resulting in a massive drop in the price of coffee, which remained low for many years. Further, in 1832, the U.S. government removed all import taxes on coffee. These two factors, as well as coffee becoming a part of pop culture, led coffee to be consumed at around five pounds a year per capita by 1850. After Saint-Domingue gained its independence as Haiti, the United States began buying its coffee from Cuba. However, there were three hurricanes which destroyed much of Cuba's coffee trees in 1842, 1844, and the Great Havana Hurricane of 1846, causing the U.S. to look for a new place to feed its caffeine addiction. This search would lead to the creation of the largest coffee producer in the world, Brazil. This show is written and produced by me, Ara Zaffer. If you have not already, please consider supporting this podcast series on Patreon. For the price of a latte a month, you can support this and future projects in this series. And for anyone who is unable to become a member right now, no worries. Please consider leaving a review on the show as it not only helps me to see what you like or dislike about the show, but also because it helps get the show to come up for new listeners as a recommended podcast. Make sure to join our community on social media at the Complete History Podcast Series. If you would like to contact us, you can message us through social media at our email, completehistorypod at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a like on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. And make sure to share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. To close, here's a quote from Thomas Jefferson. Coffee, the favorite drink of the civilized world. Thank you.